This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Don't you want devoted followers who leave their families for you, give their money to you, give their bodies to you, give up their lives for you, consider you God, and will kill for you? Don't you want to become a cult leader? Hello guys, and welcome back to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. This week's podcast will be on a cult called the Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments of God. There were a few key players in this group, but the two at the top were Cordonia Morinde and Joseph Kibwitir. Hopefully I pronounced that somewhat closely correctly. And both of them were from Uganda. So let's look into some history for that area. Uganda is referred to as the Pearl of Africa, and it has absolutely stunning scenery. They have lakes such as Lake Victoria, which is Africa's largest lake and the chief source of the Nile River, and of course other rivers, mountains, and semi-arid lands. The Paleolithic area shows that humans have inhabited Uganda for at least 50,000 years. The peoples began clearing the forest to make way for agriculture. So in 1894, it became protected by the British Empire. The British saw that there were some serious land disputes and that was pushing the country, that area, into civil war. So just before Joseph was born, the British forced the chiefs of the, you know, different lands and areas to severely limit the rent and obligatory labor that they could demand from their tenants. This, of course, calmed things down a bit and they began to grow cotton and then later coffee for the export market. Even World War II, which was hard on many areas of Africa, didn't affect Uganda all that much, and in fact, they prospered from wartime agricultural production. Their population was growing when other areas were not so much. So Joseph was born in 1932 in, of course, Uganda, and Uganda is actually kind of in the central eastern part of Africa. When he was born, as I said before, Uganda was ruled by the UK, who established administrative law across the territory. But once Uganda gained their independence in 1962, the area became well known for its violent conflicts and military dictatorship. Now, Joseph's family were very devout and pious Catholics, but his family was considered wealthy for those times compared to most others in the area. During his youth, there was just a lot of political unrest and religious tension, 
and it was intense. While he was young, he witnessed many religious movements that sort of melted together Catholicism with sort of mysticism, with an emphasis on miracles and the supernatural appearances of the Virgin Mary. But not much is really known about his specific childhood. In 1960, at the age of 28, he married Teresa. Joseph himself was already dabbling kind of in politics, and Teresa was described as polite and wore the traditional robe with a scarf at the waist. They built their house in 1973, and by then he was a rather wealthy and very well-respected member of the community. Teresa described their marriage as a happy one, that he treated her kindly and respectfully. Six years later, a very deeply religious Joseph, even though he had had many illegitimate children, decided to travel to Rome. This trip would be life-changing for him. When he returned to Uganda, he built a brand new church for his community, in the church was an apostolic blessed picture of Jesus. He was now an official politician, though not really suited for that particular kind of office, but he owned enough land to be able to donate most of it to the Catholic Church, where he had a school built on it that he designed himself. He also served as a school administrator there. I mean, to say this man was basically a local hero would be an understatement. By 1984, Joseph began to claim that he had been regularly experiencing sightings of the Virgin Mary. And again, this is not entirely uncommon for that region. So that was Joseph Kibwitir. Now let's move on to Credonia Morende. Cordonia was born in 1952. Not much is known about her very early beginnings. What is known is that she grew up with a father who claimed to have visions of speaking with the Virgin Mary as well as the Jesus. So she, of course, also claimed to have these visions as well. To say that she was a well-behaved, godly young girl would be very incorrect. From an early age, she showed signs of aggression and violence, and she carried that into her teen years. It has also been said that Cordonia poisoned her older brothers so that she could get their land inheritance. She actually boasted that she had set an old boyfriend's house on fire when he wouldn't marry her, something she would repeat later. So after that incident, her family decided, you know, it might be best if she went to see a doctor to see if she might have some, you know, issue. But the doctors came back saying that they didn't really know, couldn't find the cause. So they gave her a general diagnosis of, quote, mentally disturbed. Now, she wanted to get out of her hometown and out of that area. Somehow, she managed to get a man to marry her. Well, at least they were common-law married, but she did not love him. All she loved was money. Her husband attested to that. 
The couple opened a bar where she made her own banana liquor. All kinds of sources refer to this banana liquor, so apparently it's popular there. Let me know. But one morning, she was seen cleaning blood off of the floor of her bar. As it turns out, she had basically seduced a motorist who had stopped in. And then while he was sleeping, she murdered him and took his money. She also later told people that during this time, she had also prostituted herself. And though she came from a deeply religious family, she was not. She only attended mass maybe once a year. So it didn't take very long for her business to begin to fail. And as far as her business goes, it didn't really take long for it to begin to fail. Looking around for something new to try to do to be successful and get that coin, she began to notice the missionaries that traveled, you know, spreading the good word of their religion. They were respected. They had people that followed them and they were pretty successful. And this made a light bulb go off inside her head. Conveniently, her father told her that he had had a vision of the Virgin Mary, telling him that his daughter needed to travel and spread the word of God around Uganda. And she began saying she was having visions of the Virgin Mary as well. Mary apparently told her she should repent her sins and return to her flock, her religion. Of course, this was not true, but regardless, Cordonia began telling people she had been a prostitute, but that she had turned her life back over to Christ, repented her sins, and she was redeemed. She wanted people to see that she had been a terrible sinner and that, you know, because she went back to her faith and was successful, that they could follow her and she would help them get back on the righteous path. People described her as universally beautiful, with soft skin and a flawless complexion. They watched as she fasted regularly. She slept on the hard ground, never smiled apparently, and also apparently blacked out periodically during conversation to receive messages from the Virgin Mary. She was known to pray for hours and she sat and wrote on paper continuously. Basically, she was trying to get people to think of her as like Mary Magdalene. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. She left her husband, she teamed up with two other women, and set out to travel the land, preaching the word, doing the Lord's work. In 1989, while traveling, they attended a service that had been led by Joseph Kibwitir, and once Credonia and Joseph met, they immediately bonded over their shared visions of the Virgin Mary, as well as their mutual irritation with the Roman Catholic Church. 
Now, this was a dissatisfaction held by many people in that area and time. AIDS was a very real epidemic in that region, and the church was steeped in controversy, which is, like, of course. She told Joseph that he was meant to be the leader of a flock, and he agreed, thinking, you know, this, this is the moment of greatness I've been waiting for. This would be a good thing for Cordonia as well, because during that time in that area, she would need a man to be the face of the flock, so to speak. Okay, so, Cordonia began telling Joseph that he should let her and the other two women move into his home in with his wife and children because the Virgin Mary had said so. So Joseph agreed. His wife was interviewed and she said, quote, She, Cordonia, was humble at first, but she soon began to mistreat me. She said I was bad, then said she and her sister should sleep in the same room with my husband and I. He always supported them, unquote. Joseph's son said, quote, My father loved us when we were children, but then he started to do whatever those women told him. He stopped loving us. Unquote. So it didn't take long for Credonia, Joseph, and the other two women to put together a group that they called the Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments of God. In less than two years, they had amassed at least 200 followers, a community that followed Joseph, or the prophet, and Cordonia, or the programmer. Yes, you heard that correctly. Now, the duo's mission was to teach the Catholic faith and spread the Virgin Mary's message about the impending apocalypse. The end times were coming, which conveniently was set to be on January 1st of 2000. They attracted many followers really quickly, including priests that had been excommunicated from the church. They said people would soon be coming from around the world to the group for sanctuary. During this time, according to Joseph's wife, quote, Cordonia was silent, and she stayed alone in that room there, and then his wife pointed to a door off her living room. We would only see her when we went to Mass and meetings, unquote. Cordonia also had a young boy who was said to be her nephew bring communications and messages back and forth to her. She said she was receiving messages from the Virgin Mary and was spending the whole day writing them down. His wife said Joseph was the face, but Credonia was the true leader. Now, people in neighboring areas stated that the group seemed to be, you know, good people who didn't cause any trouble. They were completely self-sufficient, growing and tending their own food, running their own schools for the children, and everyone seemed happy and enthusiastic about their movement. Behind the scenes, well, that was a very different story. Joseph's wife and one of his sons stated that Credonia was very cruel, that she would explode into rages and beat Joseph's children, demanding complete obedience, 
including also her divinely inspired messages. After a while, it was commanded that no one speak at all. All communication should be done through sign language. But people believed in their message. Followers were proud to talk about how their leaders spoke directly to God. They preached that the only path to salvation was strict adherence to the Ten Commandments. The leaders put together a 163-page book titled, quote, A Timely Message from Heaven, The End of the Present Times, unquote. The dark book described prophecies of famines and wars, of rivers turning to blood and of food turning to poison. And remember that part. Cordonia encouraged a fanatical fear of the devil within the cult and also used the member's devotion to her advantage. She would accuse members of being possessed by the devil as a way to be able to torture and murder people within the cult, which had grown to nearly 4,000 people by this point. Cordonia got so bad that even if supplies were brought in, say, by the pallet, Nothing could come past the threshold of their area without her blessing it and exercising the devil out of it. Okay, so new members were expected to sell their possessions and give their money to the cult. Sex, even among married couples, was discouraged. Joseph was not even allowed to sleep with his own wife. And if Cordonia felt that people were getting out of line, she would emerge from her room saying, quote, I've been receiving messages from God that the Virgin Mary is annoyed. People are sinning too much and God is going to end the world because of the sins, unquote. But again, by all outward appearances, it was a strong and healthy group of people worshiping the Lord. Finally, after three years, Joseph's family, seeing that Credonia had forced up to 60 children, including Joseph's own, to live in a 15 by 40 foot shed in the backyard, urged him to kick the women out. The children were infested with scabies and many were sickly. Joseph, of course, refused and he and the three women left. He told his own children that they were no longer his children, and his wife was no longer his wife. They settled in Credonia's hometown, and there they began to build a dozen or so kind of rural outposts. But the cult's angelic public image began to tarnish in the late 1990s, when some reporters were for some reason, granted access to the compound they had built and put together. What they found would shock the locals and the country. It was visually obvious that a great many people, including children, were severely malnourished. It would be discovered that the higher-ranking cult members would get decent or very good food, but the rest might go two days without eating anything, and if someone was caught trying to sneak food, they would be severely punished. They would tell the children to not go to school, and if someone was sick, 
Well, they were to pray about it, not take medicine. The followers' daily routine was grueling. They were awakened at 3 a.m. and were forced to pray for two hours. On days they weren't fasting, they ate very little. Some children were caught eating insects because they were desperate from hunger, and they too would be punished. The followers were sworn to abject poverty, complete chastity, and blind obedience. They truly believed, though, that their sacrifices were for a good cause. Children were also being used as slave labor. There had also been rumors that some of the children had been kidnapped off the streets and taken to the compound. There were enough complaints that the government, after seeing the living conditions, ordered the cult to cease operations, but was later allowed to regroup. Now, with the new year looming, creeping ever closer, and the cult's prophecy drawing ever nearer, activity by the movement members became frenzied. Their leaders urged them to confess their sins in preparation for the end. Past members were re-recruited, and all work in the fields ceased. But when the apocalypse failed to begin on January 1st of 2000, many cult members stopped and began to question the authority of the group leaders. Some people were disillusioned and began to leave the cult in large numbers and demanded they be given their money back, which they had, of course, handed over when they joined. This helped spark the anger and paranoia in Credonia that was the ultimate catalyst for her new plan. A second date for the end of the world was picked this time. It was set to occur on March 17th, 2000. And just before that date, the remaining followers were instructed to dig on a few of their properties. They were told they were digging latrines or deep holes for the disposal of human waste. Then, the followers were unknowingly given poison in their evening meal. It was supposedly a fast-acting poison. Within several minutes, most would be dead. Anyone who survived long enough to realize what was happening and tried to run were chased, strangled, or bludgeoned in the head. This included children. The bodies were then stripped, their clothes and belongings burned, and the bodies were lowered into these pits. Little had they known they had, in fact, dug their own mass graves. So when March 17th was upon them, the remaining and unaware followers spent the beginning of the day in the church singing and celebrating. Afterward, they had a great feast of three roasted bulls and several crates of soda. They were full of hope for their future in heaven once the apocalypse began. The members then made their way back into the church building for further prayer and singing. It was at this point that nearby villagers heard explosions coming from the area of one of the compounds. Many ran to offer aid but the church was completely engulfed in flames. 
It was observed that the windows and doors had been boarded up so that none of the 530 members, including many children, inside the building could escape. Once the fire was finally extinguished, the Ugandan authorities began to piece together the evidence. They found out that one of the higher-ranking leaders had purchased 50 liters of sulfuric acid, which could have started the fire. It was believed that Joseph and Credonia had perished in the flames. After the fire, there was an investigation on the other properties belonging to the movement, and there they found hundreds more bodies in unmarked graves. At first, the sites were believed to be mass suicides, but police later stated that they were investigating them as a mass murder. Some of the remains showed obvious injuries, like being hacked to death. The bodies were packed into these holes so tightly that it was difficult for officials to separate which body from what bones. As of today, Ugandan police believe that Joseph and Credonia may very well still be alive and have issued an international warrant for their arrest. In 2014, it was announced by the Uganda National Police that there were reports that Joseph was hiding in Malawi. But his wife stated he had died from some degenerative disease in October of 2000, meaning that that still would have shown that he survived the fire. It is believed that Credonia made the trek into the Congo and that she is still alive today. Thanks for listening.